I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS, where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. This week on The Trade Guys, we'll talk Pop, we'll talk IPEF, and Section 301 tariffs, all on the next episode of The Trade Guys. Okay, welcome to this edition of The Trade Guys. This is Scott. And I'm speaking on behalf of Bill because I wanted to let our audience know one last time that Bill and I, once a year, present an online course in trade policy and politics. We call it the Crash Course with the Trade Guys. We're in the final stages of registration. So if you're interested, the course is September 19th and 20th. It's basically two long half days. It's delivered via Zoom. You can uh, attend it from anywhere covers the basics of trade policy, key trade laws, the roles of Congress, the roles of the executive, and we try to incorporate today's policy challenges into the program. We keep the participant group size small so we can create sort of a seminar atmosphere. We have a few slots available and we're up against the registration deadline. As you know, this starts in 10 days. So if you are interested, go to csas.org, click on executive education, and you can find more details there. We'd welcome you. We know our audience is among the best podcast audiences out there. But we offer this course to those of you who are interested in spending a little more time with us and getting our views on a, on a range of subjects. So thanks for listening. And if that interests you, we'd love to see you. But otherwise, I think enough of shameless plugs. We'll get back to business. Andrew, welcome. How are you doing today? Hi, Scott. Hi, Bill. Um, listen, you people out there who listen to our podcast, you got to do the Trade Guys Crash Course. I mean, like, Scott said it's two long half days, but like any time you spend with the trade guys goes by really fast. So get into it. It's going to be great. I've sat in on it. It's awesome. We're here today to talk about trade as always. And we want to start out talking about the UFLPA, the Uyghur Act. It's officially the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act, which went into force in June. Can you guys remind us what the UFPLA does, and including its rebuttable presumption? Well, basically, the underlying statute dates back to 1930. This is not a new thing. The United States has prohibited imports of items made with slave labor or forced labor for nearly 100 years. It's not been uh, well or adequately enforced, uh, partly because it's not been a government priority and partly because it's hard to prove whether that's happening or not, because the, the other country, which is usually an authoritarian state, uh, never cooperates. This case, there's a new statute, the Uyghur Forced Labor Protection Act, which I learned yesterday, there's a new a new acronym. You can call it UFLPA, which I'd never heard Uffelpa. before. UFLPA. It sounds like something from uh, Harry Potter. It definitely rolls off the tongue. Yeah. <laughs> UFLPA is great. I ta- was talking to a reporter yesterday. You said, what about UFLPA? And I thought, this is interesting. I'd never heard that before. Anyway, it's noteworthy. It's focused specifically on forced labor in, in, in China on the part of Uyghurs and particularly in Xinjiang province. So it's not a universal statute, although it, I could see Congress expanding it to cover other situations in the future. It's notable in a couple of respects. One, it reverses the burden of proof. In the past, the government had to prove the forced labor 
And that was hard for the government. There were resource limitations, and as I said, non-cooperation limitations. Ufflepot uh, assumes that if the item is coming from Xinjiang province, that CBP, the Customs and Border Patrol, has identified it, the item as having been made with forced labor. The law assumes that that is true and puts the burden on the importer to prove that it's not true. So that means the entire complexity of proving that it is not made with forced labor falls not on the American government, but on the importing party, which means they have the problem of getting cooperation from the Chinese. And of course, the Chinese position is this is not happening. There is no forced labor in Xinjiang province, and therefore we're not going to cooperate with any efforts to find it. So it's hard to prove. And the result is that when things get detained, CBP issues what's called a withhold release order which means things get stopped at the border and held there. And and they don't get let in unless the importer can prove that they were not made with forced labor. And that gets to the other issue, which is there's U.S. uh, CBP can grant an exception. If, If CBP decides that the item has not been made with forced labor, it can let it in. So far, they haven't done that. And I think one of the reasons they haven't done that is because the statute says if they do that, they must notify Congress each time they grant an exception and they must make it public. So there's a, I think, reluctance on the part of CBP to go through what certainly will be close scrutiny from the Congress if they ever grant an exception. And there are probably not a lot of importers that want that to be made public anyway. The statute is set up to find everybody guilty. And it's only been operational for less than three months. It started on June 21st in terms of enforcement. So we're not yet into the the end of the third month. It's been controversial. If you talk to business, CPP has been, CBP has been too aggressive and has been issuing WROs left and right. If you talk to politicians, uh, usually the, either the Republicans or those that are running for office, CBP has been lax. There has been a publicly reported episode of, of dates, like the fruit dates, clearly marked on packaging as coming from XPCC, which is the acronym Xinjiang province, being sold in the United States. And so that's given people an excuse to say that CBP is not enforcing the law aggressively. I mean, we'll see how that plays out. The one thing you can learn from that episode is Congress has got its eye on this. uh, And they have appropriated a substantial amount of additional money to implement the statute specifically. It has a line item now. I think they're hiring, at least based on current funding, at least 40 more people. And the budget going forward in the next year would allow them to hire an additional, many more than that, exclusively to enforce the statute. So I think business needs to take it very seriously. So have there been any immediate effects of awful pop in these last three months? Well, it depends what you mean immediate and depends what you mean effects. Certainly, it looks like, and in fact, the U.S. government is reporting that there are some changes in supply chain management. That their goal, that the goal they're working against is to eliminate forced labor from supply chains. And companies seem to be taking that under advisement and doing it. What there's no evidence of is a change in the behavior of the, of the government of China in this case. And uh, that may simply be too much to expect. As Bill, Bill faithfully repeated what the Chinese say about this, which is somewhere between it's not a problem and it's none of your business. So, but, but, Bill, so, Bill could be a great spokesman for the Chinese. <laughs> I, you know, I've been accused of that. <laughs> Actually, to digress a second, I won't name the individual who did it, but it's a classic Washington story. 
in testimony before the House Armed Services Committee when I was uh, running the National Foreign Trade Council. He accused me of being a lobbyist for the communist Chinese. Oh, my. And the committee called me up because it turns out the committee has a rule that if that happens, you have a right of reply. So I was yeah. I was allowed to send a letter to the committee responding to the accusation. But that wasn't the best part of the story. The best part of the story, which was classic Washington, is about three weeks later, the guy who said that was testifying before me at the China Commission. And uh, I asked him about it. I was trying to be light about it. I said, my wife was very upset. She wanted to know if I was lobbying for the Chinese. Where was the money? And he looked at me and said, well, I never said you got paid, <laughs> proving once again that this particular guy has no sense of humor at all. Oh, you know, only that's in the Washington, Washington story. Well, you know, it's one of these things. The, these, the sanctions programs, there's a long history of them. They're, they're more about feeling good than doing good, mostly because getting the foreign government to actually change its behavior is quite difficult. And occasionally you, you have enough leverage to do it. I think practically speaking, in the case of China, with a, such a large home market for these products, we're talking cotton one of the largest apparel markets on the planet now uh, in terms of, of China, the Chinese home market. They also have many other export destinations. Same is true with solar panels. The solar, there have been some solar panels intercepted and under the statute, but China itself is the largest market in the world for solar panels and has been for a number of years. So it's very difficult to force a behavior change under that situation. We contrasted this a few weeks back to Nicaragua when the U.S. government decided to suspend their uh, territory quota, the, the sort of preferential access to the U.S. sugar market. So in the Nicaragua context, obviously much smaller economy, much uh, more dependent on exports, but still changing behavior is hard. I would note that we had a fun episode. We called it, You Can't Fire Me, I Quit, talking about putting sanctions on one of our 20 free trade agreement partners in the world. But it also is an example where we have the most knowledgeable listeners out there because Bill and I received a note from one of our listeners, Amy Porges who's a current trade lawyer, but was a veteran of USTR for many years, particularly in the general counsel's office. And Amy recalled an incident in the Reagan administration, like 1983, when Gene Kirkpatrick, then the UN ambassador, raised the issue of uh, Nicaraguan preferential treatment and got the sugar TRQ suspended. And it wound up in a dispute before the GATT in 1984. So history repeats itself. But thanks to Amy we and, and, and all our, our informed, knowledgeable listeners. But this is a longstanding situation, even with a tiny country like Nicaragua. Trying to change behavior with, uh, with sanctions is something that's quite difficult, if not impossible. Yeah, I just want to put out like a notice to all of our listeners. If any of them want to write us or call in and discuss the fact that Bill is a lobbyist for the Chinese and the spokesman for the Chinese, you are welcome to do so. And we're happy to discuss it. We will pile on with glee. <laughs> yeah. All right. So enough about Pod, but I'm very excited to know that it's now called Pod, and we'll probably talk about that going forward. It is important, but it's a very funny acronym. Let's talk tariffs, guys. Let's talk 301. What is going on with the Biden administration, which has decided to keep in places Keep in place Trump era Section 301 tariffs on goods from China. Why and under what authority did the administration decide to keep these tariffs in place? And is, a good, is it a good thing? It's being slow rolled is the only conclusion that, that I can come to. These are the tariffs that Trump imposed in 2018 and, and then some later on in 2019. And That's back when we were calling him tariff man. 
Yes, that's what, when that's why we were calling him tariff man because of these. Yep. And uh, under the law, they are supposed to expire after four years, which meant the first tranche of them expired was were supposed to expire on July sixth. And the second tranche was exposed to, supposed to expire, I think, on August 23rd or thereabouts. And then the, there are later tranches that expire next year. And pursuant to, to the law, the USTR put out a notice in advance telling people if you wanted to have them extended and not expire, you needed to write USTR and say that. And uh, so far, they've had 358 companies have written in saying that they want to have them extended, plus a bunch of associations, basically writing in, some of them writing in saying that all of the tariffs ought to be extended. So I thought that what would happen is that USTR would make a decision about that before they expired. And they would be either continued or, or not, or they, it would be selective. You know, some would and some wouldn't. And then nothing happened. And nothing happened after the August deadline either. So finally, last week, the USTR published a notice that said, we have now received all these requests to renew, and we are now going to do an evaluation of what, we do, what we're going to decide to do. In other words, we are now going to do what I think they were supposed to do before the 6th of July, which is strange. So now the review begins, belatedly. They also announced that while we're doing the review, the tariffs will continue. So nothing has changed. I think, frankly, at this point, this is more or less politics. The president has figured out that any decision he makes, it doesn't matter what it is, keep them, get rid of them, uh, split the difference, get rid of some, keep some. No matter what decision he makes, it'll be too little for business and too much for labor. So it's a lose-lose decision regardless of what it is. Uh, so you can see why he's not anxious to make it. And I think what they've done is rather elegantly figured out how to kick the can, at least beyond the election. So I would predict no significant change in this until after the election. The argument in the spring was you need to do this to deal with inflation. Most economists have pointed out that it probably would not have much of an effect on inflation. There were some studies done, and the, the biggest study suggested it would not 1.6 percentage points, I think it was, at the, at the most, off of the inflation rate. And that was only if the Chinese dropped their retaliatory tariffs. And other studies suggested a much smaller impact with, I think, inflation beginning to decline anyway. I think some of the steam has gone out of that argument. So we'll see, but I think we won't see until after the November election. Experts are divided on whether removing the tariffs would actually help reduce inflation. Isn't that right? Well, yes. And uh, I recall when the tariffs were initially imposed, we had a devil of a time finding any impact on import pricing. So they were hard to identify as a, a factor in increased cost of goods from China when they were first imposed. And it's been my experience that these, these tariffs get sticky after a while because first firms adapt around them, production networks change, and often there are companies domestically located in, in most cases who find a benefit to the tariff being applied to the foreign goods. So the winners and losers change pretty rapidly. For whatever reasons, the tariffs just tend to persist. They get sticky. So my first thought was somewhere tariff man is smiling because whether this was intended or not, it persists. But it for me is a story about almost all tariffs. When you remove them, People make business plans and get on with life. Uh, that's what happened in every one of our free trade agreements, that when you created the agreement, there were some long phase-out items, most of which 
wound up liberalizing early because companies wanted to get on with it. But in the case when you impose them, they tend to stick around as well. I would note that's why the chicken tax is still around, even though it's nearly 60 years ago that Lyndon Johnson imposed a 25% tariff on imported trucks from, at that time, West Germany because of a refusal to accept our processed chicken. So the chicken tax is still with us today. It could be a member of AARP if it were a person. But, you know, there you have it. That's, I think that's the story of tariffs. Uh, we love the chicken tax. Yes. One of my favorite subjects. Don't get me started. Oh, the chicken tax. Oh, my goodness. Well, we'll have to watch and see what happens with 301. But hey, there's always the chicken tax. Let's talk IPEF. IPEF is constantly something we're talking about on this program, but it's holding its first in-person ministerial meeting this week in LA. What do we know so far about what countries, what, what are the countries discussing? Well, they all showed up, all 14, counting the United States, and most of them sent ministers, which is good. I think there were two. One, I think the Philippines did not. I'm not sure of the status of the one, the, the person the Vietnamese sent, but everybody showed up. In any event, they are a little bit of disadvantage because we're recording this before the meeting is over. And if to the extent there's news, it will come out probably four or five hours from now. So we'll have more to say about this, I'm sure, next week. There's been one announcement so far, which was from uh, Secretary Raimondo and Ambassador Tai for a um, public-private partnership in uh, called the Upskilling Initiative that will help women, particularly women in small businesses, develop the digital skills they need to participate more actively in the global economy, which has been well-received. I think about half the countries or IPEF countries are going to participate in it. And I think it's from the administration's point of view, a validation of what they've said in the beginning that, you know, that there are in fact tangible benefits that can be provided without addressing tariffs. In a way, it goes back to what we said early on when we discussed that. It is a tangible benefit and it'll be provided essentially with U.S. money. Now, it is a public-private partnership and there's a number of very large American companies that are participating in it. And so some of the money will be theirs, but it still is what we predicted. If you're not going to give market access, the only other thing you've got is cash or in-kind contributions. And that's what's happening. But it's a good thing. I looked at this and observed three things. One is that there's a focus on information sharing. Second, there's a business association formed to support this. And third, they're talking about public-private partnerships. What this sounds like to me is the rebirth of APEC. APEC, which of course goes goes back to the Bush 41 administration, if I recall, it was a leaders meeting in the Clinton administration. In forward, I think the first one was in Clinton, but I think you're right. It began. The conversations between trade ministers and finance ministers actually began in the H.W. Bush administration. In any case, APEC, which we jokingly refer to as four adjectives in search of a noun, did a fair amount of good in terms of generating cooperation, economic cooperation over the years. This looks to me, particularly given its absence of the market access negotiations, and it looks more like soft commitments than hard ones, but the involvement of public-private partnerships and, and a business association starts to feel like APEC. I don't think that's a bad thing. I had years of personal involvement on APEC from the business side and thought it was on balance beneficial, but it looks to me like what we have. Uh, Bill, you probably see it. Differently. It's a good thing, but it, it, it dawned on me actually yesterday and watching the meeting unfold. It really uh, represents the triumph of idealism over pragmatism. You know, if, if you listen to Ambassador Tai, who gave a speech yesterday, it was, we want to use the trading system to do good things for the world. 
We want to promote decarbonization. We want to promote workers' rights. We want to promote transparency. We want to promote the free flow of information. We want to promote cooperation and information sharing. These are all good things. I don't think there's any question about it. And I think, you know, people would be better off if, if all the nations of the world cooperated. And so it's very idealistic. I think the, the problem that many of us have pointed out is that when it comes to trade negotiations, most trade negotiators are pragmatic. And the topic isn't, is not just, is this good or bad? The topic is, what do I get out of it? And if we're not offering anything up that's, that's meaningful, then it's going to be hard to get other countries to do things that will be costly to them. It's all well, and, uh, labor is a good example. It's all well and good to say we want to promote worker rights. We want to promote unionization. We want to raise wages globally. Those are all good things. If you're a developing country, you would look at it a little bit more cynically and say, well, yes, if we raise wages, it makes us less competitive vis-a-vis you. And it's going to make it harder for us to penetrate other people's markets, harder for us to sell. It's going to decrease our trade surplus or increase our trade deficit. And it's going to cost us a lot of money. So they're not going to say, oh, it's a bad thing. We think that oppressing our workers is good. Nobody's ever going to say, I don't think anybody's ever going to say that. But when you get to the consequences of what we're proposing, these things impose costs. You want to decarbonize? Great. You know, everybody's for that, but it's expensive. And you're talking in some cases to countries that some of them don't have the money to do that. Now, if we're going to pay, fine. But, you know, you end up with the pragmatic part of the equation, which is what are you going to do to help us do all those things. And I think that's where we'll, it'll be interesting to see, A, what the U.S. comes up with and how much idealism the other countries are willing well, to buy. Let's talk about something that we've ranted about for many an episode. Supply chain transparency it seems to be the popular kid on the block these days. What does that mean? And how do countries actually work together to achieve policies that reduce supply chain frictions? I mean, if... I call one more car dealer and see if we can get an electric vehicle. And they tell us that there's something with the supply chain. I'm just going to lose it. Well, I think Scott has some, will have something to say about this. The pre-IPEF gossip is that one of the big winners that may come out of this is an agreement to cooperate on supply chains and critical minerals, which would be sort of win-win for the U.S. because we need critical minerals and we're involved in a search for them because countries that are difficult for us, particularly China, have a lot of them, but that they're not the only ones. So what it means, I think what it means for the United States is let's all share information about what we've got and what we can produce. And let's see if we can work out cooperative agreements in which we commit to share. Again, this is a good thing. But then you get to the practical consequences. If you're going to talk about what you've got, it means you've got to provide information. And that means you've got to go to your companies or your miners or your mining companies and say, all right, what are your deposits? Where are they? What are you doing? How much are you producing? And what are your plans? And that's proprietary information. A lot of companies are going to be reluctant to give that information to their own government, in some cases, probably because they're evading taxes and they don't want to get caught. But they're going to be even more reluctant to have that information passed on to another government. So it's a good idea. I hope it happens. But I'm not sure how far it's going to get. Scott? Yeah, Bill, I, th- I think Bill's right. It sounds nice. It sounds like it addresses a real problem, but it doesn't. And the reason it doesn't is, first, supply chains are astonishingly idiosyncratic. Every company, every firm, every product has a different one. And working at it at the aggregate level almost always gives you useless information. 
But more importantly, these so-called industries are a group of competitors, right? I think the Biden administration learned this with natural gas, where they genuinely wanted to increase natural gas exports to Europe for the uh, for the NATO efforts in the Ukraine conflict. And one of the things they seem to have forgotten is that all these natural gas companies compete against each other, okay? They're, they're, they're not necessarily cooperative. There is some top-line cooperation, top-level cooperation, which you see in their trade associations. But when you get actually down to who does what by when to deliver something, which is what a supply chain is, uh, almost always you have, you have competitors trying to deal with each other and governments interjecting levels that, that actually harm rather than hurt the conversation. And so there's so much of this that is, that is close to spontaneous order, just markets working like markets, and so strange and idiosyncratic that it changes uh, week to week, product to product. I think they'll get nowhere. I think it's happy talk, but I hope to be proven wrong. So that, that's interesting, Scott. I didn't realize that the LNG that we're trying to export so desperately to Europe to help them because winter is coming and they're in dire straits over there. I didn't realize there was all that going on behind the scenes. Well, yeah, there's there's a whole industry structure there that I think has largely been ignored because it's convenient to deal with the stuff if you're in government, convenient at the top level, because you really have no way of understanding what's underneath it. But if you actually want to influence it, you've got to get underneath it. And that's really hard. Uh, and nobody seems to have the patience for that. Well, and in the United States, you know, we have rules against some yeah, of this stuff. Against it, right. uh, yeah. You know, if you look at the antitrust laws, there's a, been a, a hundred plus year concern that if you ask companies to cooperate, uh, that leads to price fixing. Yeah. And let's face it, nobody's ever accused anybody in the United States of actually having patience. <laughs> Yes, that would not be that's sort of un-American these days, but uh, there we have it. All right, guys. Well, we've talked IPEF, we've talked UPLEPAW, and we've talked 301. So that means we've done our duty this week. Great to have you. We will be back next week to talk more trade. And in the meantime, don't forget about the Trade Guys Crash Course. It's an awesome course. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you. To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. You've been listening to the Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.